0: Welcome to Pulp, the show with the most and with the host. First, we have our inaugural entry from one of our anthology series, Adventure Tales. These ones might be westerns, they might be explorers, they might be a race against time. It might be anything. If it's an adventure, you can be damn sure it'll show up in Adventure Tales. So that's what we have today, a story from the wild, and I do mean wild, west. A word of caution, though. This story contains grim settings, such as a gallows, as well as some good old-fashioned unsavory jokes. Might want to put in some earphones or wait until the uns are asleep. Without any further ado, on with the show! Let the wonderment unfold! Bastard son. Back in the Old West, if you lived in the boundless land of the Apache, Arapaho, Comanche, and Navajo, in what is now called the Durango area of the state of Colorado, there would be no escaping the name of the most notorious bandit in the land. Your ears would be bombarded by a veritable onslaught of the daring exploits of one John Brett. Some would tell the story of how he robbed a stagecoach with nothing but a stick, Others would tell the story of how he robbed a bank in Denver that, at the time, had no money. He robbed the bank by tying up the bank clerk and worked the whole shift, taking the money that the railroad tycoons and the mine owners deposited. Then he told anybody wanting to make a withdrawal that uh, the safe was locked and he ain't got a key. But folks, I ain't here to tell you about those stories, no siree. I'm here to tell you about the last ride of John Brett. Our story begins in the Durango Jail, where our friend is waiting to be hanged. Our hero sat comfortably in his jail cell. His back was propped up against the wall his short legs and feet dangling over the edge of his cot. He was humming a happy little tune that seemed to annoy the deputy who was trying to focus on paperwork, and Brett knew it. "'Will you quit that racket?' the deputy finally exploded. "'What are you gonna do? Arrest me?' Brett said with a cocky smile. "'I don't gotta take no guff from no tubic criminal.' "'the deputy said, even more annoyed. "'Then leave,' the two-bit criminal replied, "'and continued whistling his tune "'while casually surveying the sloppy stucco job on the ceiling. "'How about I come in there and bust your face instead?' "'The deputy was getting hotter, "'and stood up with his shoulders square "'and faced the criminal in the cell, "'who continued to sit on his cot and swaying his feet "'as if he were on a bench in the summer breeze.' "'How about you do that?' he said. The deputy stood up and began to fumble with the keys in an angry fashion while Brett watched in amusement. Just then, the door opened and the big boss, the head honcho, the man with the big gun, walked in. He wore his star like a medal, a prize badge of honor. He walked in with his shoulders back like a kid trying to look taller than he was, and his hand on his hip like a disappointed parent trying to convince a teenager to respect his authority. He was stone sober but looked like a drunk man about to pick a fight, like a rotten apple all polished to be sold to some sucker, like a loaf of bread all puffy in the oven. He was accompanied by a wraith of a man who seemed thin enough to squeeze through the jail bars, I'll advise you not to rough up criminal low-lives, deputy, the sheriff said in his unearned bravado. You see, when people see a beat-up criminal get hanged, they start to feel sympathy. And that's the last thing we want for folks to feel sympathy for a cowardly criminal. He walked up to the cell to stare Brett in the eye. But Brett just kept whistling and looked about the cell, happy as can be. The sheriff continued his sermon, unclear if he was talking to Brett or the deputy who was so recently threatening the prisoner, and still unsure himself of whether or not he was in trouble. This is a war, son. We are battling for the good souls of the folk out there. They will be purged of the sin amongst them when they see avarice and pride executed before their eyes. Inhumiliation... We need to humiliate the sin amongst them. His voice rose and fell in attempted eloquence. Uh, Just because your wife humiliates you, Brett started, but was interrupted by the sheriff pulling out his pistol. I'll execute you right now with a general here, he said, red-faced, referring to his gun. (laughs) Is that what you call your dick? Brett said with a belly laugh and laid back with his hands above his head on the cot so he could face the sheriff. No wonder your wife humiliates you. The sheriff cocked his gun and pointed it at Brett. This gun was taken off the great Stonewall Jackson and you'd do best to respect it, he continued to threaten. You said to yourself, big fella, you want me to die humiliated in public. You can't beat me, You can't kill me. You're stuck with me. The sheriff's face turned even more red, but in a moment he became still and holstered his weapon. You can't force me to respect something that earns no respect, Brett continued. Now I can gag you, the sheriff said. Oh, you'd like that, wouldn't you, Brett said with a flirtatious smile. The sheriff then turned to the rail-thin deputy that walked in with him. You see, Carlton, this is why we need authority in these lawless lands. Men like this wander around like fatherless children. They need discipline or they turn to
1: perversions.
0: He waved his hand around as he spoke, like he would if he were addressing a crowd. You're no different. You hide behind your badge to get off on your artificial authority. That's not a perversion? Brett said while he began to tie a stalk of wheat into a knot. Rebellion is a sin of witchcraft. To go against my authority is to go against God's authority, the sheriff bellowed. That's why all criminals are godless creatures. The only reason I'm a criminal is because what I do is illegal, Brett returned. You can shoot a fella in the back as long as you call him a criminal and walk away from it. Now that's wrong, but it's not illegal. But if I do the same thing, I'm a criminal. So you're on that side of these bars because you serve people who want to get rich at the expense of others. And I'm on this side because I make my money at the expense of those same rich people that pay your bills. But what's the difference? Criminals are just people who do the same things rich people do, except the laws rich people write are a gun pointed at the poor folks scraping by. Sounds like criminal talk to me, the sheriff said, breaking off the conversation. I guess we'll let the rope do the talking in the morning. The lawman rose, straightened up his jacket, and began walking out the door. I suppose that's how you escaped from Billings, the sheriff said as he made his way out. You tried to talk their ear off, and when they got in the cell to gag you, you made a break for it, is that it? He turned around and headed to the door, shaking his head. The coward's way. You've been reading those crazy pamphlets, haven't you, Brett said. Nobody does that. It's stupid. If I get the keys, I'm still in the damn cell. So while I'm wrestling you for it, all one of your cronies has to do is lock the cell. Then I'm stuck in here with... You. Ugh, I'd have a sheriff all over me. Gross. Brett, laying down in the bed, put his hat over his face. However you try and justify it, you're still just a criminal, the sheriff said with more conviction than he needed. Don't let him talk, he said to the Railfin deputy on night duty. He'll poison your mind. And with that, he promptly left before anyone could say anything else. After the sheriff closed the door after him, The railfin deputy on night shift settled in his chair with a pot of coffee. After a few minutes, when he was sure the sheriff was unlikely to come bursting in again, he started talking to Brett. Did you use that trick in Billings? he asked. Oh, sure, I've, I've used that trick before, but I didn't need it in Billings. I used magic, Brett said. You don't have to tell me if you don't want, the deputy said as he kicked his feet up on the desk okay you got me I didn't use magic but you wouldn't believe the truth if I told you Brett replied I've got time for an entertaining lie the deputy said indulge me All right. one time I was hiding away from some buddies of mine in an old abandoned mine shaft I found a massive terrifying creature We got along like biscuits and gravy, and we've been riding together ever since. At Billings, she crashed right through the jail walls, broke me out, almost collapsed the whole thing on top of me. How come it weren't in no papers, the deputy said, trying to whittle a piece of wood with a bowie knife that he'd taken off Brett when he was arrested. You're going to tell me that a giant lizard tearing up a town in Montana is going to be in a paper? Now, I have seen some creative embellishments in a paper, but They're all believable at some point. Somebody prints something like that, and true or not, nobody will believe them after. Sounds like an easy excuse, the deputy replied. Maybe, Brett replied, and turned over to go to sleep. The next day, Brett slept in like it was his first day on vacation. When he woke up, the sheriff was looming over him. "'Got enough sleep for your big date?' he said as Brett propped himself up on the cot and rubbed his eyes.
1: lot of hard
0: work getting hanged,' the sheriff taunted. "'Ah, you know, I like to give the crowd a good show.' "'Now what about that last breakfast they keep talking about?' Brett said and sleepily scratched his belly.
1: "'Oh, you'll be
0: getting none of that,' the sheriff said." After your smart mouth last night, I've decided eating isn't for low-life criminals. You get hanged on an empty stomach today. Where his face was red with rage the night before, it was covered in a self-satisfied smirk now. Damn shame, Brett said, putting on his boots slowly. That bacon smells mighty fine. Just hurry it up, the sheriff said. I got other things to do besides putting you in the ground. Brett stood, taking his time, and stretched before following the sheriff out of the cell to allow him to buy his hands first with cuffs and then with a long rope. What's the rope for, Chief? Brett asked. In case you got plans for those cuffs, the sheriff sneered. I heard about what you did up in Boulder. Brett laughed. So you think a rope will do where steel fails? He continued to chuckle. Nah, I guess they hired you for your aim and not for your brains. But I guess you don't even need aim with a gun like that. The sheriff's only response was to jerk his quarry along as hard as he could. Afterwards, the sheriff led him out of the jail to a crowd beginning to picnic in front of the gallows, erected at the center of the town square. He saw a deputy on the gallows, a deputy drinking on the balcony of the saloon with a woman, Two more walking around with their hands on their hips, scanning the crowd. They certainly weren't taking any chances today. As Brett took a look around the crowd, he noticed that some of the men were armed, looking around as if they were sheriff's deputies. Seemed like they were having quite the time playing pretend. As Brett was being led through the crowd, the two deputies who had been walking around the front of the jail cell their hands on their hips, were trying to clear a path. A child, led by his mother, who seemed to be intent on reaching their destination, stopped for a moment. His mother, tugging at his arm urgently, seemed unable to move him. He just stood, looking at Brett inquisitively. "'Where are they taking you?' the child asked him. Brett stopped and leaned down. The sheriff had not noticed and kept walking, his hands still on Brett's slacked leash. Oh, they're taking me to the great big candy store, Brett replied to the child with a wink. Come along, Jeremiah, that man is a criminal. His mother had lost patience and was near carrying him by his elbow. Criminals are nice, the child said. I like criminals. His mother then carried him off, twisting his ear and scolding him as she went. From here on out, the sheriff roughly dragged Brett by the cuffed arm to the gallows, with the other two deputies having quite the time trying to make a path for the doomed man and his rival. As the sheriff roughed Brett along, the crowd jeered. Someone threw a tomato, but it missed Brett and hit the sheriff, who stopped in his tracks and cursed at the top of his lungs that the next person who threw one would be put down by the general and he pulled out his massively oversized gun, waving it in everyone's faces. After that, the crowd parted like the Red Sea, and they made their way quite easily to the scaffold. After climbing the stairs to the noose, the sheriff paused for a moment at the top to give a quick statement of how he had brought in the famous criminal. Well, not him directly, but the deputies that he had trained. While Brett was waiting, he wandered as far as his rope leash would let him to a vendor beside the gallows who was selling dolls in his likeness to be hanged in effigy. He paused for a moment, taking in the morbid sight of a doll with X's for eyes and a felt tongue hanging out to the side. He could hear the sheriff wrapping up his speech. How much are the dolls? he asked the vendor, who found the inquiry amusing. Just a nickel, he chuckled, but for you a penny. For my own likeness, you should be paying me. Brett replied with his leash being tugged at by the sheriff. The vendor laughed even louder and called out after him. Yeah, well, when you're done up there, you can have all my earnings. He was about bent over laughing by now. I'll take you up on that little man, Brett called back. As he made his way up the platform, the hangman came up to him with an apologetic look on his face. "'Gee, Brett, I hate to do this, but if it's any comfort to you, the platform's made from trees in that forest that you like so much.' But Yeah, Jimmy, uh, thanks. Thank, uh, I'm greatly comforted by that. Thanks,' Brett said. "'Yeah, no problem, Brett. It's just, you look nervous is all,' the hangman said. "'Oh, yeah, I have a friend coming, but I think she might be a little too late to miss the show,' Brett replied. "'You invited friends?' "'Gee, that's nice of you,' the hangman said. "Now, what can I say? I'm a hospitable guy,' Brett replied and turned back to the hangman, pausing for a moment. "'Say, would you do the fellow a favor? Would you mind if I had my last words outside the rope? "'It's just, I, I feel like I can't say what I need to loud enough, you know?' "'Well, sure, Brett. I don't see why not,' the hangman said with a cheesy smile." Brett looked over the crowd and surveyed the faces. Some were bloodthirsty, some fearful, some even looked sad. Most of them, however, were there to celebrate the brutal hanging of an outlaw. He stepped forward and began to speak. We're all bastard sons of orphan fathers, and you're no different from the thieves you hang. You've got a bastard right here waving his dick substitute at anybody that inconveniences him. And that's the man enforcing morality here? No wonder your children will all turn criminal. It's a far more moral life than the one under this law. The godly Christian folk gasped at his coarse language, while an audible collective snicker rose from the rest of the crowd. Brett continued. Which one of you thinks that by killing me, you will end killing? You make the distinction between murder and killing to justify doing to others the exact thing that you want to stop, so what makes you any better? Killing me does nothing but makes you feel better about yourselves. You don't have to feed the hungry, you don't have to worry about who had your land before you, You don't have to worry how much a rich man makes off of you as long as you tell yourselves you killed the bad man on the noose so you can continue doing whatever you do. I am on this platform to ease your distorted conscience. The crowd sat in silence. They'd grown accustomed to the panicked, desperate plea of a man who had just eaten his last meal with shaking hands and an upset stomach. This was not that desperate plea, but it did not take long for the shock to wear off, and the crowd began to respond in the petulant manner becoming of a crowd who had come to witness a hanging for entertainment. At that moment, the earth began to shake, and a deafening roar emanated from outside the town. Each person in the crowd turned to each other and spoke in shocked whispers. Had he been right? Was this the final judgment? The roar sounded again, and the earth shook with tremors, one after the other. Then, they saw it. A child pointed to the edge of town and yelled, MONSTER! The townsfolk froze in terror at the sight of a giant Tyrannosaurus Rex the size of the General Store, stomping through town, roaring as she went. The crowd began to move one way and then another like a herd of sheep. Some townsfolk ran for their lives as fast as they could. Some ran for cover in the buildings, only for some of them to collapse on those seeking shelter after being flattened by her massive tail. Those who had guns and were not in complete shock tried shooting at the dinosaur, but their bullets just bounced off her thick skin. She made her way easily to the town square, "'Citizens fleeing before her like flies. "'And when she had almost reached the gallows, "'she leaned down and let loose the most terrifying roar "'at anyone who was near. "'The deputy guarding the gallows attempted to stand his ground, "'firing all six shots at the chest of the monster, "'all of them ricocheting off. "'One of them almost hitting Brett, "'who, while outside the noose, was still bound in irons. "'The monster looked the deputy in his eyes.' and growled with her saliva dripping from her teeth. The deputy shook like a jumping bean. He was luckier than most, and fell off the platform, remaining in a groaning pile at the bottom. Townsfolk that were still close enough stopped in their tracks and ran for their lives. The hangman was long gone before the gallows deputy made his stand, but the rope binding Brett's hands was still there and fastened to the railing. The beast approached, bullets ricocheting off her and bit the rope. Brett turned around and she promptly and gently bit his cuffs off. You sure took your time, Brett said as he hopped on her back, positioning himself on the saddle. I didn't want to steal your spotlight, she said, kicking a townsperson who charged her with a pitchfork. Brett climbed on her back and put his feet in the stirrups she was wearing. He looked around in the saddlebags. They deprived me of my morning bacon, I'm in no mood for a spotlight. "'Will you hurry up, Sundance?' his partner said. "'I may be bulletproof, but I still don't like getting shot at.' Brett had found his revolvers and cocked them both. "'I'm ready when you are.' The beast then let out a horrifying roar, and anyone in earshot cowered. The two deputies that had been on crowd control had taken cover in the general store and began to open fire on the two. Brett let him have it with both barrels. One went down and the other ran for his life. Then he looked around for the deputy who was sitting at the balcony. He was still there, but his companion had gone in to hide. He was kneeling behind the railing with a rifle in his hands, taking careful shots at the two of them, that, even in the chaos, kept hitting dangerously close. One shot whizzed past Brett's head. Another two hit the dirt at his partner's massive feet. Balcony, Brett yelled over the din, but his partner faltered. There was someone in her way. It was the sheriff. He was on his back he had been knocked down at some point but he was holding his gun at her she could see the gun quite well and she knew it would kill her she let out another terrifying roar that shook the ground and the sheriff flattened like a burlap sack as she ran over him brett looked back and it seemed like the sheriff was alive and moving but not getting up anytime soon when he turned and faced forward they were at the balcony The deputy who had been firing at them was now cowering. The beast bit into the balcony and took half the deputy with her, and then turned to leave town. "'Any more law?' the monster asked Brett. "'Just a couple on jail duty,' Brett said, "'but I don't know where they are.'" Brett eyed the square for any sign of the deputies and where they might have been holed up. He didn't have to wait long. A popcorn cluster of shots announced themselves from the direction of the jail, all the way across the square. Apparently, they hadn't gone far. He gave a quick glance but couldn't see them. The monster stood still, unsure of which direction would be safest. Before long, the deputies revealed themselves again, both peeking out from the sides of the building. Well, that's a convenient gathering, the beast said to her companion. It'd be a shame if we left without a parting gift, Bert replied, reloading his pistols. Ready when you are, he said after loading his last bullet. His companion let out her last roar and charged at the building. Brett huddled behind her neck and put a few bullets in the general direction of the deputies' cover to keep them hidden. At the last moment, he pulled his arms in while his companion crashed through the jail, leaving the deputies under a pile of rubble. After destroying the seat of the law, they kicked rocks to get the hell out of Dodge and turned down an alley behind the main drag to avoid any fire from the few townsfolk that might still be trying to bag a trophy. When they turned the corner, there was the sheriff, waiting for them. Everything happened so fast. The sheriff emptied his gun into the beast, and she dropped. Brett sat there in shock for a second. He was worried for her, but he knew the sheriff was reloading, and now was his chance. He pulled himself up and got to where he had a clear view. By the time he was ready, the sheriff was too. Ain't so tough now, are ya? The sheriff gloated. And Brett seized the moment, drew clean and quick, and before the sheriff got to his gun, there were two bullets in his chest. Plenty tough for a roach like you, Brett replied, and put every last bullet into the sheriff. He turned around to tend to his partner. There were two wounds in her belly, and they were bleeding bad. It's been a hell of a ride, Brett, she said, and I wouldn't have traded for anything. Brett didn't say anything. He knew she was going, he wasn't going to waste it on desperate pleas. I never thought I needed a partner until you found me in that cave, Brett said, kneeling beside her. Just do me one favor, she said. Blood had begun to mark her teeth. Name it, Brett replied. When you get a horse, don't name her after me. She let out a hoarse chuckle. Brett returned the laugh through a runny nose and wet eyes. You can scold me in the next life, then, Brett said, and placed her arms in a peaceful arrangement. The two deputies on jail duty had emerged from the rubble and approached the recently departed. But when they got there, Brett was gone. Folks around there heard stories of an angry man with a big gun, but nobody ever heard of John Brett again. Some folks said he might as well have been hung the second the sheriff shot his partner. about it folks i told you there'd be dinosaur riding cowboys we've got an illustration of mr brett and his trusty steed over on our instagram page done by the talented annie vaughn you can also go check out her instagram page at annie vaughn illustration that's all one word now a little palate cleanser a journey through an ancient and unknown deep a tale of exploration into the unknown. through the bioluminescent forests. A few years ago, a great underwater volcanic eruption was recorded near the subatlantic trench. And, when the activity had died down to manageable levels, a team was assembled to go and record our findings. We were ferried into the deeps in a fantastic new vessel, designed particularly for observing the great depths which were our destination. To avoid fissures, the hull of the vehicle had been composed of a pinnacle piece molded at high temperatures and poured in one sitting to prevent any weaknesses in the hull. Most of the ship, other than the observation areas, had been tempered by various heating and cooling techniques. This, I was told, was to improve morale. It was discovered that, when diving to such momentous depths, the sailors would succumb to a great despair. The captain told me he suspected it was that, when gazing into the cold dark of the ocean depths, one is overcome with that great despair upon the realization of how truly alone one is, how close one is to oblivion, and how great a distance between you and any semblance of safety one I myself postulate that, when able to view such great emptiness, one is reminded of the emptiness that one feels at all times, but avoids the acknowledgment of at all costs. This I felt for myself when I visited the observation room in the bow. Lights had been mounted on the front for visibility, if, God forbid, our other navigation instruments had failed. And... After a few minutes of gazing into that deep nothingness, I decided not to gaze into that abyss until necessary. It took us little time at all to arrive at the designated area slated for scientific observation, what with a state-of-the-art engines propelling us at breakneck speeds. However, as we approached the subject of our expedition, the captain reduced our movements to a cruising speed for safety and improved visibility. As we moved steadily through the vast, cold, and unwelcoming darkness, a vague glow appeared ahead. At first, it was like the glow of the sky above a city that is just over the horizon, faint but most definitely present. As we drew near, the glow became less faint, less centered, more of a glow of confederation of light. As we approached, there seemed to be a misting of bright and luminous dust passing us by. But soon, as pieces of this seeming dust floated close enough to the window, I could see them for what they truly were, tiny jellyfish-like creatures. I could not see them closely enough or long enough to confirm my suspicions, but as much as I could observe, they were constantly changing shape, never fully maintaining that umbrella structure that we are accustomed to seeing them in. The individual lights that had been a loose amalgam before were now spread apart and visible in some detail. The first of the brighter lights that we reached was a series of large, fan-like structures shaped like a single half of a clam, but comprised solely of a sort of soft material that radiated an ever-changing variety of colors, from a dark pink one minute to a bright orange another. The fans were stacked on each other from end to end, some more perpendicular, some linked parallel like train cars, some at obtuse or acute angles. From farther away, one could observe small figures darting from one fan to another, but as we drew nearer, we could see them more fully. They were humanoid creatures with webbed feet and hands, with purple veins visible from the outside. At first, I gasped in horror at the sight of them, but they did not return the sentiment. Instead, they waved as if they themselves were on a parade float, and then returned to their sport of launching themselves at the brightly colored fans which bounced them away. They would bounce from one to the other, like children hopping on rocks in a stream. On our right, we passed deep blue orbs. It looked as if it contained a Tesla coil with static electricity and constant crackling movement, and equally constant migrating patterns of manic electricity. The orb itself had to be solid to withstand the unseemly amount of pressure. The color was of the electric neuron-like shapes, much like the veins of the creatures we had seen before. I wondered if this great structure provided any substance to the happy, playful creatures. On our left were bunches of giant orbs the size of entire houses, clustered like grapes with neon purple leaves underneath, which some of the webbed creatures would sit on as if they were a porch in a tropical cabana. The creatures would slip through the surfaces of the orbs. I can only assume these places were their dwellings. Sporadically distributed around every orb or fan or source of light were massive structures that looked almost like trees, but instead of one single trunk they were a formation of interconnected beams with radiant glowing purple kelp-like leaves. Further on, we navigated through a cavalcade of large dark green tubes that bent and swayed with the currents. Each tube was much larger in diameter than any of the legendary great redwood trees, but they did seem comprised of a similar wrinkled texture on the outside, ranging from a deep green on the edges to a slighter green towards the insides, giving a pleasant, stark outline to their shapes. The massive stems reached far out of view, much taller than any forest above water. I looked above us and saw great, glowing whales, larger than any tanker ship built by man. They were unfamiliar to us, unlike any other whale we had seen. The herd of these great creatures slowly made their way across, herding their small ones like sheep, and then passing on into the abyss. As we departed the great underwater city, A school of bright fish, playfully darting along, passed close by to the windowed bridge. These were not fully luminescent, but only parts of their skin were. They were like skeletons of dark red neon tubes of light, with natural yellow outlining their monstrous-looking faces. As monstrous as their appearances were, they seemed to have the most playful dispositions. For a moment, while passing through that underwater city... The abyss, that always felt so close, and dissipated, if only for a moment. Well, that's it for this one. Two down, one to go. If you made it this far, we won't let you down a third time. Go on over to the next episode for a final release of our release party palooza and more fantastic tales that will spin your brain like a top. We'll see you there.